0: Are you ready? Are you sitting down? We're going to pull back the curtain on the divorce process, the mistakes and the missteps. How can couples navigate the divorce process? Can you still divorce in a healthy way? The conversation is as good as it gets. It's fun, insightful. It will change the way you think about your life and how to tackle life's challenges. The Shine On Podcast, season three. Episode 68 of The Shine On Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. Coming up, I am joined for an absolutely incredible conversation by Matthew Bray, who is a relationship coach, blogger, and author of the book, This Is How Your Marriage Ends, A Hopeful Approach to Saving Relationships. We talk all about Matthew's book and his journey from divorce guy to blogger and relationship coach. And I got to tell you, wait until you hear Matt news, dishes by the kitchen sink. I promise you won't ever think about dishes the same way ever again. And Dave, I got to tell you, it's the middle of November. The holiday craziness has officially started the plans. Who's doing what for the holiday? Who wants which holiday? Which parent gets Thanksgiving? And which parent will get winter break, Christmas, Christmas Eve? Which matters more? Hanukkah, the first two nights, the full eight nights. We are in full swing. And I gotta tell you, if you're a divorce attorney and you're not negotiating these terms, what the hell are you doing?
1: That's right. What are you
0: doing? That's... I mean, I mean, holidays for people, it brings up all sorts of emotions, all sorts of stresses, and everybody, if anybody wants to fight over who gets the kids for the holidays.
1: When you have to split up those eight crazy nights, you call Evan Shine. That's what you do.
0: right. Absolutely, Dave. I can't say say it any better than that. And I got to tell you, the stress of it all, like I just mentioned, it brings out the absolute worst in parents. It's often easy to lose sight of what the holidays is all about. And parents so easily and so often make the holidays more about what they need than what may be best for the kids. And Dave, I know we've talked before about your experience, but for those people going through a divorce, give the listener some advice headed into the holiday season, Dave's do's and Dave's don'ts <laughs> when it comes to the holidays.
1: I would say Dave's do, pick your battles, decide what is most important to you, and then don't squabble over the other stuff. So Dave's don'ts would be, don't die on a hill unnecessarily, don't, don't, you need the kids for the entire week of Christmas. No, you maybe you can compromise on that. You, it really is just just as simple as give and take, because it's it never ends. It's it's gonna be late November in 365 days from now, and this is gonna happen again. So think think down the road, think long term, and don't don't insist on all eight crazy nights. You can do fine with three or four crazy nights.
0: You want to know what my do is?
1: Yeah, I do.
0: Listen to whatever producer Dave says. <laughs> I got to tell you, Dave, you're, you're spot on, mm. right? You are absolutely spot on. We're going to talk more about the holidays in the next episode that comes out right before Thanksgiving. But, Dave, as we always do on the Shine On podcast, you know what time it is?
1: I think it's time for the docket, Evan, if you're ready.
0: It's, do- it's docket time, so let's fire it up.
1: And now. Let's see what's on the docket. As usual, we comb the newswires for the latest in divorce news, and the first item on the docket comes to us from WKBN.com, Ohio. <coughs> item item one. one. Headline reads: Why a sleep divorce may be a good idea, according to a Cleveland clinic. More than one-third of Americans opt for a so-called sleep divorce. This means they sleep separately from their partner at night. And there are all kinds of reasons why. There are benefits. It seems unusual, but your thoughts, it
0: Can a divorce actually be the key to saving your marriage? Let me say that again. <laughs> Can a divorce actually be the key to saving your marriage? Mind blown. That's right. Yeah. The sleep divorce. And I hope my wife's not listening to this episode, because I got to tell you, <laughs> sign me up, Dave. Sign me up. But what's more important than getting a good night's sleep and- Look, getting a good night's sleep, it can actually help your relationship and save your marriage. Think about how bad you feel after a bad night's sleep, arguing with your spouse. Is it too hot? Is it cold? Honey, turn the temperature up or, sweetheart, did you turn the temperature down? Mm. Is someone snoring too loud or is someone talking in your sleep? Mm. But here's the thing. You wake up feeling absolutely awful and exhausted. You wake up annoyed. You wake up angry. You wake up resentful. And here's the catch: the person who's causing you not to sleep, he or she gets a fantastic night's sleep. It's absolutely incredible. Doesn't and seem you're fair. You're resentful as a result. It's not fair. Mm. It doesn't seem fair. So I am all about the sleep divorce as a way to help your marriage and stay at it. Mm. My office and getting a real divorce. I didn't. Are you th- buying into the whole the whole idea of sleep separate? I,
1: I love this, and it comes from personal anguish, like so many have experienced. I. In college I never my roommate told me that I was snoring and I said that's impossible I don't snore. Anyone who says I don't snore doesn't realize what they're saying is counterintuitive. You don't know whether or not you snore because you're asleep <laughs> when you're doing it. So he tape, he tape recorded me one night and him and, and another dude were like you could hear them narrating that sounds like some pretty loud snoring and sure enough I was snoring very loudly. So every relationship in my marriage it it's places stress on it. It's it's not uh, you got to get over if you think it's somehow verboten for a married couple not to sleep in the same bed. It's, But it doesn't mean you can't still, obviously, it doesn't mean you can't still be intimate with your spouse. You can do that. But sleep is sleep. Sleep is sleep. I'm all for it.
0: We've been, we've been I got to tell you, look, my wife talks in her sleep, and she knows it, and she admits it every now and then, which, look, I don't lie because half the time she's saying how wonderful and how great I am. But the the other part of it, I got to tell you, look, I can deal without it. Sleep is important. You're spot on. Sleep is sleeping. Everybody needs it.
1: All right. Let's move on to item two. (coughs) Item two comes to us from Time Magazine. Headline reads, I got divorced, but my family is still whole. Personal story written by Maggie Smith and all kinds of details. I'll just take your thoughts on this one, Evan.
0: Yeah, Dave, I thought this was a tremendous article by Maggie Smith, how to think about divorce, what divorce means on many levels. And she really talks about the loss of divorce. She uses the initials BD for before divorce and AD for after divorce. But what really catches my attention in this article is she thinks about and talks about how for her divorce was a mathematical equation when you think about it as, you know, a quarter or a third missing of your family now, once you separate and get divorced. And for so long, she focused on thinking about it that way, as opposed to thinking about how her life was really full. And I really liked this, Dave. I thought it was real and honest and raw. I liked the mathematical equation piece of it because I think it's relatable to how people think about life BD before divorce and how really you could think about life AD after divorce. And as she talks about it, it's so easy to compare your life after divorce to what life used to look like. But I think if she explains going back and taking a look in the rear view mirror and comparing it, you're always going to feel like a quarter or a third of that family piece and family puzzle is missing, as opposed to looking at your life going forward and then appreciating it for what it is now and having it being full. What's your thought?
1: I think it's wonderful. It, it's always important to think of things in a different way when you are AD, after divorce, because a lot of what we think of as the idea of the conventional family is historically driven into our skulls by Hallmark cards, cards and images on TV. And now, mind you, I'm a divorce guy. And in a perfect world, I would have liked my family to stay completely together in the conventional sense. But it was unhappy. It's happier now, and it looks different. So I, I like the fact re, reinventing terms and looking at things differently. It's, it's, your life is going to be different. You can't deny that. But it doesn't mean it can't be happy and fulfilled. So uh, go, uh, you go, Maggie. I like this piece. We are now up to the portion of the program where we hear from you, the listener, in Ask Evan. Ask Evan.
2: Ask Evan. Ask Evan.
1: Today we hear from George in Buffalo. He writes, Dear Evan, my marriage has been a real struggle in the past few years. My wife and I have three children aged eight 11 and 13. My wife struggles with alcohol and has been in and out of treatment programs the past few years. I've tried to be supportive each step of the way. However, I am most concerned for our children. My biggest concern with moving forward with a physical separation and divorce is around my wife's drinking and to ensure our children's safety and well-being when they are with her. I want our children to spend time with their mom, but that time should be safe and healthy. What can be put in place in parenting agreements to try to ensure that my wife is being monitored for alcohol so I know our kids are safe when they're with her. That is a tough one and a good question. Evan, your thoughts?
0: George, it is a good question. In fact, it's a great question. Go Bills, and I'm sorry to hear that you're going through this. It's never easy, and there's not a short-term fix to really address this. You have three children, and regardless of whether you get divorced or not, you want to make sure your children are safe when they're with their mom and that she's getting the right treatment and the right help And really, the right protocols are put in place. And fortunately, there are some really great ways to monitor, test for alcohol that we often use in parenting plans to really monitor compliance. That's really what you're looking for, is the parenting time to be safe and healthy and monitor compliance going forward. First, if your wife is seeing a psychiatrist or a therapist who can provide letters of compliance to ensure treatment, that's helpful. Second, there's programs such as Soberlink, which can monitor alcohol intake. Before, during, and after the children are going to be with their mom where you receive real time updates. The third thing is having a strong parenting agreement with different layers is important where there's accountability and responsibility. The fourth is testing, but figure out the w- right way to put an alcohol testing protocol in place and one that actually works. And to help figure out what makes sense and the right testing protocol, I would suggest speaking with an expert. And last but not least, In a recent case I had, we agreed to have a third party oversee compliance and have monthly meetings that can become quarterly as time goes on or an as-needed basis to really oversee the mom's compliance with everything that she's supposed to do in the parenting agreement. This third party, yes, it can be expensive, but it can be anybody, a third party such as a family counselor, a therapist, or a parent coordinator. That's another edition of Ask Evan. If you want to submit a question for Evan to answer on the podcast, email producer Dave at david at pod617.com. Our featured guest on this week's episode of the Shine On podcast is Matthew Frey. Matthew is a relationship coach, blogger, and author of the book, This Is How Your Marriage Ends. A Hopeful Approach to Saving Relationships. Matthew, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the podcast. Welcome to the Shine On Podcast.
2: Thank you. Delighted to be here. I appreciate the invitation. No, of course.
0: And we're going to get into a lot of different topics. And I want to start with really the moment that you went from a divorce guy to a relationship coach. Take us into that. What was that like for you?
2: I'll have to conflate two different moments. I started blogging because I needed a means of just dealing with, I I had, I don't think you're a stranger to conversations about how disruptive divorce can be to people's lives. And some people, I think, navigate it pretty well for various reasons. They have a lot more anti-fragility and resilience than I do, or maybe they've been through way worse things in their life. So divorce isn't such a big deal, but for me, it was huge. And so I share the experience of all the people that their life imploded. When it happened and I needed to figure out how to like protect my future self from that. So I started writing about it and not to anybody in particular. And I wasn't like advertising it or anything. I was just sort of like screaming into the, the void on the internet, but people, because of the magic of the way search engines, social media work, people started to listen. And, and so this phase one of this transition was when people started to like take seriously this idea that here's this random guy writing and I'm going to pay attention to it and I'm going to sort of like leverage it as information that's going to inform my life. I got really, really serious at that point about, I I did a lot of goofing off and and I was writing about like being a a newly single guy dating and I don't know. There was nothing professional about it at all, but that's like, that was step one of, I'm going to start taking this seriously. Like if people are going to pay attention, I feel some moral responsibility to do a little bit of good in the world. <laughs> Stage two was five, six years later when human beings literally said, Matt, can you work with me? And, and I said, no, I said no for a while. I'm in no position to, I just felt really, really sensitive about it. Sure. Finally, a couple of people arm twisted me into saying yes. And when you do things enough times, I, I don't know, it stops being scary. So I never like really hung the shingle, like per se. I just sort of like accidentally found myself doing it. It was really wild. like I I
0: love that. And, And speaking of the wildness of that experience, going back to phase one, what was that reaction from people who were reading what you were blogging about?
2: It's the exact same reaction they still get from the book. Your story is my story. It's like you have a camera in our kitchen or our bedroom or our living room And you're hearing all of the same conversations that we're having because your reported experience, whether it's your description of your wife or your description of yourself, feels a lot like me and a lot like my marriage or my family. And so there's this sort of like instant kinship that happens with, obviously I'm not for everyone, but for the vast majority of people who recognize themselves in the storytelling. When you coach clients, when you work with
0: people, thinking about divorce going through divorce do you use your personal experiences and what you went through when constantly. coaching others yes sir,
2: constantly and it is my my primary i mean the and and the motivation is not some egocentric like let's make it about me i really I really want people to know that they're not alone like i want people this is uncomfortable conversation for most people i've become very comfortable talking about it after 10 11 years And there's not a lot of like, I think there's a lot of men particularly that don't have, let's call it a safe space to like talk about what's going on with their marriages, with their families. By me telling my story, everybody knows I'm not coming from a place of judgment. And I think it's really critical for people to not feel defensive in order to experience personal development.
0: You mentioned the 10 or so years since the end of your marriage and and a divorce, as you think back over the past 10 or so years to that moment for you when your marriage came to an end, what do you remember most about the end of your marriage in 2013? And would you do anything differently in the year or the months really following
2: that time for you? That's a really good question. And and, and I, and I, I wish I better understood the spirit of the question that you're asking, because cause what I remember most, if I'm just being like all the way honest, I don't know how useful this answer is to anybody, is like the raw, like physical reaction. Like the, like, it might, might I die right now? Like, might my heart stop? Because I, I seriously, it was like, it's really, it's not very, I don't know, polite dinner table conversation, but I was like literally like vomiting in my kitchen. It was, I just never had anything insanely traumatic happened to me before and watching my wife and four-year-old drive away that did it yeah i thought i acquitted myself relatively well after I, I i are there some nuanced things that i know today that i didn't know then that might have facilitated a a faster healing process with my son's mother so that we could have more quickly gotten to like where we are now which we've i think we've done a great job i don't want to like pat ourselves on the back too hard but like and great but but undoubtedly the real work didn't begin till after she left so there was still a period where i was feeling sorry for myself and and really strongly believing that i was being sort of like unfairly victimized or mistreated and all of it and and it was a very honest sort of thoughtful like reaction to my wife leaving after all those years but i believe that i miscalculate you know what i mean as i think you know yeah i believe. And it's really the premise of my work that there are things we are blind to that hurt other people. And the most logical thing in the world is for people to want to escape situations that hurt them. So if we accidentally hurt people, they will want to leave. And I believe strongly that's the story of my marriage and most marriages.
0: No, I got to tell you, I think that is incredibly helpful to everybody who's listening. And even going back to Jean, that type of reaction that you described, the physical reaction. Look, as a divorce attorney, people sit across from me in meetings all the time where their life is crumbling, their relationship, their marriage is ending. And I think it's so easy for people on the outside to say, just get through it, survive and thrive. And I, I, I lo- it's a very optimistic way of looking at getting through the divorce process. And there's truth to that. But at the same time, divorce takes time and people are going through. One of the biggest transformations, one of the biggest uh, transitions in their life, whether it was expected, whether it was unexpected, the stress, the emotional stress, the physical stress that you talk about in terms of the reactions that you went through. And I don't think that part of it is talked about enough, just how hard it really is. And again, there's so much focus on life's going to be better, you're moving on to another chapter. Again, all, all possibly true things, but it is so hard for people. In that moment, divorce is a full-time job. I see it. You went through it where, look, it's going to affect everybody in some way, shape, or form, some people emotionally, some people physically, but it's going to affect
2: everybody out there. That's exactly how I thought about it. The It was a combination of, this is the worst thing I've ever experienced. Yep. I assume this is also the worst thing many, many hundreds of thousands, millions of people Experience. I suddenly developed some semblance of empathy and compassion for all the divorce that happens. I did yeah. some homework on how often it happens. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is statistically likely to occur yeah. for like millions of people, like globally. And then, and then combined with the conclusion that most marriages, and I, I, I don't know that I can verify this. This is, this is all theory really for me, but it, I think it bears out. I've, no one's ever challenged me on it. I think most marriages end slowly. Between two people who really want it to work, and they like they're they're in it for the right reasons, and they love each other. And when they said "I do," they really thought it was going to be like they didn't go into it saying "I'm probably going to get divorced." They really thought it was going to going to work, and and it just doesn't because relationships are hard, and they require a skill set and an awareness level that most young people hate to pick on men, but I really think specifically a lot of men that we're not equipped with in our youth. And then we we don't take them into our adult relationships and then a bunch of accidental pain forms. And 10, 15 years later, families can break up because of it.
0: So to piggyback off that, what do you find are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have, whether it's through your research, people you know who got divorced, the clients that you work with, really the biggest misconceptions that people have, why marriages and relationships have?
2: I mean, if I'm going to like hit the nail on the head for, for my people and my work, and again, it sounds like I'm picking on men and, and, and I really don't want to sound that way because I actually like to defend men because I think most of the time the so-called pain or damage that, that is emanating from like their behavior is truly like accidental air quotes. Yep. Like, they don't, they don't think people should feel bad because of what they're doing. And, and so like therein lies the rub. It's like I exist in my marriage. I'm just going to work. I love my wife. I love my family. And obviously I'm talking about like so-called heteronormative male-female relations, the statistical norm, but these things happen in all types of relationship models. And, and the perception is that my wife is interpreting me wrong. Like she's getting this wrong. She believes something or she feels something that is inappropriate or unfair to, to, to what I, to what's reality. And, and I think that is like If we're going to like boil it down to one limiting belief, it's, they shouldn't feel that way in the first place. Therefore, I don't, I don't really have a good reason to like self-reflect and like do something about it. I, my wife is hypersensitive to things I do and I don't understand it because my friends and my coworkers and my family of origin, none of them have this reaction to me. I've been alive 25, 35, 45 years. My wife is the statistical outlier. She is the one person who levels these complaints about me. I think it's rational to conclude that that she's indeed the problem. But I just, I think that's like not calculating for some really important data in terms of how much she hurts because of things we don't hurt because of.
0: That's a great point. Matthew, in terms of your coaching practice, can anyone be coached? And who might not be the right fit for your coaching practice?
2: There's a lot of stubborn people, and I was certainly one of them. I, I would have been ill-equipped <laughs> to work with some with, with, with whatever I am today, 11, 12 years ago. Uh, to me, like the right person is someone who says humbly, there's a chance. There's a chance that, that things are happening that I don't understand. Let me go explore that idea. And if I'm in a position to do something about it, I should. And, and I get a lot of that. And that's great. The, a person that believes, even if you are always right, even seriously, like even I I, I tell the story about a monster under the bed all the time, like a little kid being afraid of a monster under the bed. And, and there are a couple ways as a parent to navigate that. One way I think will alienate your children and make them not want to involve you in life hardships and you will be less connected and less close because of it. Then there's the way where it's like, OK, I don't agree that there's a monster under the bed. But someone I love is scared and crying and requires some measure of comfort. And as a father to this child, the message I want to give is whenever life's hard, whether whether I agree that it's hard, whether, whether I'm feeling it and thinking it too, you can always come to me. And even if I can't fix what's wrong or fight your battle for you, you're never going to be alone when you're dealing with something awful. And that is, to me, like what we deprive our, our relationship partners of. And that, that goes both ways. It's like when I don't think or feel the same thing you do, you can't trust me to have your back on matters large and small. And I I just think that erodes trust in relationships. People
0: always debate internally or talking to friends or family, should I stay in a marriage and relationship or should I go? How does someone truly know when their relationship is at an end and if they've exhausted everything possible to make that relationship work?
2: I think that's such a difficult, difficult question to answer because, because I mean, again, I don't want to like praise myself, but I really think if like my wife had had a crystal ball, she'd be like, wow, Matt really is capable of getting this. And maybe we tough out another two, three years as I sure. sort of like transition. I guess I think about it the other way. I, there is a person usually, this is not universally true and they think of this way better than I do, but, but, but Along the lines of the premise of, of my work that that people are usually accidentally hurting each other, I think that there's one person getting hurt more than the other, and so one person saying something's wrong, and the other person saying everything's fine. Like I'm fine, I want this, and 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 usually she's like, I hey, don't. This isn't okay to me. No. When is it time to leave? It, it it's going to vary by pain tolerance. People have children. When in, in my experience, most mothers will ride out a marriage until their children are, let's just say, grown, um, college-ish. I I see that. I I see that all
0: the time. A lot of people refer to it as the, the danger zone because the mom might feel, and a lot of times it might be the mom who feels that the kids are young, right? She's not comfortable for whatever reason, justified or unjustified leaving the kids with with the children's father. The idea of not being with the kids every night is something that she can't necessarily comprehend. And again, I see it with male clients as well, yes. but I see that a lot in the example you, you mentioned where people will stay in relationships. One reason in particular is because they have very young kids who are not at the point where they can communicate openly and freely. If something happens when they're with the other pair.
2: Yeah, I, re- I really think so. I, I- I, I think when one person calculates, this hurts me today, and it projects to hurt me forever. Like, like I, I see no evidence that this won't hurt me tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. And when somebody is part of a voluntary partnership, I think it makes sense for that person to to withdraw from it. When they're like, this literally does more negative to me than positive. Like, this is a net negative life experience. Why would I voluntarily subject myself to it for the rest of my life? And, and right, people of all shapes, sizes, genders make that decision for any number of reasons.
0: Thrust, infidelity are two of the things I hear all the time from clients. There's an affair involved, infidelity. It could be financial infidelity. It could be emotional, an emotional affair. For many people, that's a deal breaker. Something happens, they're out. And for other people, they're willing to work on the marriage, work on fixing what went wrong. For the couples that are willing to work on it, do you have any advice for ways to go about fixing the trust in a relationship, in particular when there has been infidelity?
2: I I, I don't think I really pride myself, or or, or you know, pride the right word, but but I sort of like advertise advertise myself to be. The guy that talks about the little things, the blind spot things. Yeah. And I think infidelity is, and physical abuse and, and crime are, are super obvious things that would end a marriage. And, and I really like to focus on the non-obvious, but, but I think interestingly, I think affairs, the vast majority of the time happen because of the non-obvious. There are years in which let's just, the most typical example is, I'm a man. I do not validate my wife emotionally when she's hurt, when she's scared, when she's stressed, when she's like, Hey, can we make this like change in our relationship or in our, in our shared lives together? And, and there's these, these sort of like frequent and validating responses. I don't think what you think or feel what you feel. And I choose me over you, or we get really defensive. I certainly did. And, and we say your feelings are not my problem. Like I, I choose my feelings over your feelings. And this is sort of, I think the standard. Conflict pattern in, in virtually every relationship that over time results in two people pulling apart, and I think let's just say again stereotypically, like the wife in that situation might start engaging with their girlfriends with their sister with her mom, maybe with male coworkers at work. Both people start to feel unwanted and unloved by the other, and when you feel unwanted and unloved by somebody, you no longer feel like you're breaking a promise. They don't love me. They don't want me anyway. But I still feel a need to be close to somebody to to feel affection. I don't want to sound like an affair apologist because I'm not. But I really think there's a cause and effect thing here that people don't accept personal responsibility for. And it's not like I married the biggest con artist of all time. Sometimes that's true. And that's awful. And I feel really bad when that happens. Most of the time, I just think three, four years in, maybe longer, people are like, well, this is a sexless loveless marriage where nobody seems to want each other anyway, who am I hurting? And I I think that's frequently the genesis for a lot of extramarital affairs.
0: Matt, tell us about the leaving the dishes by the sink moment that garnered a lot of publicity. And I got to ask, do the dishes now?
2: I leave, I leave. I don't want people to imagine like huge piles of dishes in my marriage because it really wasn't like that. It It was a drinking glass that I used for vitamins and water like in the morning in medicine. To, and I just wanted to leave it there and, and I still absolutely that like glass there. Um, it's just like <laughs> my way, but, but I, I'm glad you asked about it. So I wrote that in January 2016. It is far and away the most popular thing I've ever written. It was a blog article called She Divorced Me Because I Left Dishes by the Sink and it generated lots of conversation and debate. And, and I had a lot of people who want to challenge me on it, mostly men. And, and I, and I like to talk, I like to talk about it because they say, Matt, nah, because I think they ask a really fair question, like really fair. They say, Matt, why don't your feelings about the glass being there matter just as much as your wife in in an equal marriage with equal power? Are, are you suggesting that we just have to do whatever our partners want, whatever our spouse or wives, whoever want in order to be considered good partners, good spouses, good husbands? They're like, cause I, I reject that idea <laughs> that I just have to do what someone else wants me to do. And they're like, Matt, why don't your feelings about the glass being by the sink, your preference for it being there matter just as much as your wife's? And I think that is an exceedingly fair question. And in 2016, I did not know how to answer, but I think I do now. And, and, and here's how I would tell that story today. Yep. When I walked into the kitchen and the glass wasn't there because my wife was air quotes getting her way, I would go to the cabinet, I would get a glass, I would do everything that I wanted to do. And at no point in that process did I feel hurt, did I feel unloved? that I feel betrayed, that I feel anything even remotely close to bad. I got a glass. Everything was fine. That was not the identical experience my wife had when she walked in the kitchen. When she walked in the kitchen, in the context of our 12, 13-year relationship, and many, many conversations around the glass, the glass indicated one of two things. It told one of two stories. It either said, I do what I want. You're not my mom. You're not my boss. And when it comes to what you want, what you think, what you feel, I choose me over you. And I always will. And she had reason to think I might have meant it that way. An essential, a sole middle finger waiting for her by the sink to let her know <laughs> I'm not going to be bossed around. Yeah. She had reason to believe sure. I might have meant it that way because I did talk that way sometimes. The other thing it could have meant is she wasn't important enough to me to even think about it all. And that At no point does she rise to a level of significance that I'm aware of, that I'm, I'm, I'm conscious will be impacted when she walks in the kitchen and finds the glass there. I never bothered wasting a second of my time trying to think about what would happen in her head and heart when she encountered this thing that we'd had a number of discussions backslash arguments about. And I just think that's the bottom line in relationships. And it's not fair. None of it's fair. And I always equate it to food allergies. It's not fair that I can eat peanuts and some people will die if they eat them. It's not fair, but it's real. In relationships, there's emotional nuance and some people hurt for reasons we think is ridiculous. And, and and if we don't learn how to honor the pain threshold or, or what is important to someone else, I, I submit, I posit that 5, 10, 15 years later, trust will erode enough in a relationship where one or both partners will want to leave it.
0: I'm going to ask you to put on your relationship coaching hat and then your writing hat. What do you love most about coaching people
2: and same question, what do you love most about writing? Well, those a really good question. I'm not entirely sure I have the answer for you. It's twofold. In a post-COVID world where I'm by myself a lot in my house, I love the human connection of working with someone else. And I feel like I have something to get. Again, at no point did a parent, a teacher, a coach, a mentor, a neighbor, a friend, anybody ever discuss these things with me. They don't think it's because they were all trying to hide the truth from me or set me up to fail in my marriage. It is just a product of the environment and the culture with which I was raised in a small town in Ohio. And it just, this was not on the minds and hearts of everyday people walking around in my life. Despite the fact that I think everybody agreed divorce was like a negative thing. I just don't think anybody said these subtle things and conversations around a dish by the sink will have a meaningful impact on whether your marriage makes it or not it was just not part of the equation. So. I really think that I contribute to eliminating blind spots. I give people a fighting chance in their relationships. Really good people who deserve to have their marriages and their families intact. They're they're really trying. On the writing side, th- that's that's a tricky question. I, I I wanted to cook or write growing up. I I, <laughs> I wanted to be a chef or I wanted to be let's call it a novelist. Those were like sort of like the fantasy jobs. I didn't want to work 80 hours a week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. So I just. But I chose writing and decided I'd leave cooking for just like the hobby stuff in the kitchen. Well, hopefully and you still uh, get
0: to still get to cook in uh, your free spare time. Yeah,
2: you get to you got to do both. Like no matter yeah. what, it, it, it's evolved so much. When I was when I was a teenager, I was like I loved seeing my byline in a newspaper when I was pursuing journalism. Which my the first ten years of my out of college, I was a business writer, um, at a daily newspaper down in Florida, and well, I mean since the blog started it's honestly virtually the same answer as coaching. It gives you a lot of purpose when you put something out into the world and you're obviously doing this work now and in your everyday life regardless, but certainly this podcast is like a voluntary content in the world and it impacts people theoretically in a positive way, I hope so. And, And that's, I mean, that's the goal on my side. And when I get that feedback that says something I read or heard from you fundamentally altered my life for the better that's really, I mean, it's just gross and selfish and ego driven, but it's, it feels awesome <laughs> really good. Yeah, no, and, it feels yeah good. I love it. Yeah, I people do. are
0: listening, they're interactive, but they're active with what you put it out there and they're engaged and no, it, it, it feels great. So what topics are out there that for you as someone who loves to write and journalism background that might be on the horizon for another writing project in the future?
2: You're the first person to ask me about it in a in like a publicish forum. I am in the early stages. I've got the outline ready. I'm I'm all I've all I've done so far is write the first half of the introduction. My plan is to write and publish a book very specifically. And I don't I don't love again the sort of stereotype targeted gendered component of this because I think my work is truly for everyone. But we are targeting young men entering marriage. And so the, the audience in mind is the, 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 25 to, to 30 year old young man who's, who's not started the, the little, the little accidental paper cut things that I think tend to contribute to a marriage becoming, um, untenable 10, 15, 20 years later.
0: So that's fascinating. And I want to ask you about that. I know you mentioned you're in really the infancy stages about that, but I'm sure you've done research really in that that age range. What do you find that people in sort of the demographic that you described would benefit from knowing about what marriage and what relationships really are like? I find people, when they come into me, they'll always say, look, I didn't think it was going to be this hard. I didn't think that raising kids, it was going to be this challenging. I thought, Marriage was always going to be like the honeymoon that we had in Greece, right? Marriage isn't like that, right? That I know that people who have been through it, they know that. But what do you find to be sort of the biggest misconceptions that people might have about marriages and really the work that's involved?
2: I'm going to get more granular as the project moves forward. Right now, it's... It's, it's the same idea I, I thought of myself. Yeah. I was in a committed relationship with a woman for two to three years. And that was long enough data sample relative to my age, which was 22, 23, 24 to say, I can do this forever. I, can, I, I really believed that I can do this forever. If this, if these are the conditions and the things you can't calculate for, it's just impossible to calculate for when you're young. Are what, to what extent do bringing children into the fold stress and strain your relationship? And I do not mean to denigrate children who I, I couldn't love anything more than my son. But, but the, I, I think there's, I think that is research back that nothing, nothing strains a relationship like the addition of children. And, and I think more makes it even more difficult. I I just think bottom line and you think of, Children is a blessing and we all should. But I don't think we think about, all right, the trade-off is I need to become much more mindful about my contributions to parenting or to the household or to whatever. I I don't think a young man's thinking about those things at all. I think if he thinks if I stay out of trouble and I don't cheat and I don't lie and I'm good to her, this is how it's always going to be. And it's not how it's always going to be. (laughs) what, What is required? for attraction and for, for coexisting peacefully in our twenties and, and, and and like, like legally and spiritually single and and like dating and just getting started are literally not the same ingredients required to, to do it in our thirties and our forties when our parents are getting cancer and dying and our kids are dealing with God knows what, and all of that. It's, it's, it's just not the same. And I don't think people are, are armed with that information heading into marriage and if I can be a contributor to that for some people, I, I hope that I can be. And,
0: hey, Matt, we're going to bring on one of the biggest contributors to the Shine On podcast, executive producer Dave's going to join us for a fun segment. They said it.
1: Yes. Thank you, Evan. Executive producer, did I just get promoted? I think that's t- terrific. Thank you, Evan. It
0: did, which we can keep the executive title so long as you don't ask me for a hanging <laughs> piece right now, but.
1: Uh, isn't that always the way? But you I'll work t- hard enough. You deserve it. Thank you. I'll take it. Yes. Let's let's play around. Of they said it. They said it. They said it. They said it. All right. What we do, of course, is we give three quotes from famous people or infamous people or whoever, and we're just gonna have Matthew react one way or another. Our first quote comes to us from comedian Rita Rudner. And it reads as follows. I love being married. It's so great to find that one special person you want to annoy for the rest of your life. So, Matthew, you can agree, disagree, or otherwise. What do you think of Ms. Rudner's quote?
2: I take it in the funny spirit with which she said it. I do think we annoy people that we spend the most time with. I think that's inevitable. Um, I, Mark Mark Manson is one of my favorite writers and authors. And, and, and he talks about, and I hope it's okay for me to use this word, like you have yeah. to figure out what flavor of shit sandwich you want to eat for, this. <laughs> and I love that line and and there's I just think that there's an element of truth to that. I think everybody's gonna bring baggage and 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 little idiosyncrasies to the table that we're not going to love what's the shit sandwich that complements ours the best or that we find most palatable?
1: It's true. I think I've found myself in the past many times enjoying a shit sandwich, but with lettuce, tomato, and maybe some ranch dressing on there. So, excellent answer. Our next one comes to us from Eleanor Roosevelt, and the quote reads as follows. The most important thing in a relationship is not what you get, but what you give. Pretty simple. I'm sure she's not the only one who said that, but your your thoughts on on that one, Matthew?
2: Yeah, that's very much in the spirit of my coaching. When I'm talking to the people I'm working with, almost always husbands, it's it's like we can't control like what our wives choose to do next. We can only sort of control like what we contribute, taking pain off the table and contributing some positivity. And I I believe very strongly in the law of reciprocity, the idea that when we do meaningful work to lift someone else up, that it, it's going to be reciprocated either. Directly or indirectly.
1: Great. Uh, the last one comes to us from funny man, Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey said the following, behind every great man, there is a woman rolling her eyes. <laughs> Sounds like something he <laughs> would say. Um, maybe there's more behind that uh, quote or maybe there isn't. I don't know. Your thoughts. Uh,
2: I've spent more time than I than I preferred to sort of inadvertently picking on men in this conversation. I, I don't think men do it because they're bad. I think men do it because young boys are not taught relationship skills heading into marriage. So I, I do think a lot of great achievers do so on the backs of their wives sacrificing a lot to keep a stable home, to raise healthy, intelligent, well-balanced children. I think there are many, many, many stories in which, in which that's the case.
1: Very good. Evan, I give him an A, but uh, but I don't know. I'm just a lowly intern here at the Shine On podcast. Terrific job, Matthew. Back to you, Evan, to uh, to wrap things up.
0: Matt, that was great. And I got to tell you, this was an absolute blast, a lot of fun. Tell everybody where they could get a copy of the book, get in touch with you, and really find everything that you're putting out there, the great content, and reach out.
2: Thank you very much. Again, the book is called This Is How Your Marriage Ends. It's available, I, I think, virtually every major book retailer and even some not major ones. My home on the internet is Matthewfrey dot com. And and there'll be a way to, to find me easily enough. But I'm writing on a platform which you may or may not be familiar with called Substack now. I have a publication called On the Rocks, which I'm trying to update once or twice a week as a nod to my enthusiasm for bourbon whiskey, but which I do not add ice or water to ever. And I don't know, we're 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 continuing the work of the blog and just a new fancier place
0: that's awesome, again thank you for coming on the podcast I appreciate it
2: thank you so much, it was a pleasure
0: Producer Dave, what a show Matthew Frey was terrific check out his book and if you haven't read his blogs they're an absolute must read there's no better time to work on your marriage than the holidays so definitely pick up or order This Is How Your Marriage Ends A Hopeful Approach to Saving Relationships by Matthew Frey Producer Dave, what a show
1: Terrific show. Really enjoyed, uh, Matthew. Humble, funny, and really insightful.
0: Many of the same qualities that we all love about you, Dave. <laughs> you can listen to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts, including the incredible Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. I'm in Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon.